If you would turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1. We began last week looking at uh, the beginning of Zechariah's prophecy at the birth of his son, John. That is John the Baptist, the forerunner. And the beginning of the prophecy is much concerned with the Messiah, God, who saves. And we come now to the second half of the prophecy. Where Zechariah gives his attention to and uh, prophesies about the ministry of the Messiah's forerunner. You'll pardon my voice. Try not to do that too many times, but uh, it's the time of year when who knows how long my voice is going to last. I might be drinking a little bit more water out of my traffic cone up here, but um, if you'll bear with me. One interesting thing to consider, really a question to consider in Bible study, is at each stage of biblical history, what did people understand concerning the Messiah? So we stand after all the events of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And we have the clarity of hindsight. Of course, there are things that have yet to happen that we don't have hindsight on yet. But Adam didn't have any of the perspective that we have. He heard one thing in his life. Uh, The the proto-evangelium, as we call it, in Genesis chapter 3. Noah, he had a little bit of a different perspective, but he still didn't have the same that we did. Abraham, what did he know? What did he perceive about the Messiah? What did God reveal to him about it? Moses, he had yet more revelation, but not as much as we do. David, history continued to develop. He himself was an author of scripture. Nehemiah, this is after the exile, after the period of the monarchs in Israel. Nehemiah coming back, he's seeing promises fulfilled. He has hope about the future for the Messiah. What did he understand before the Messiah came? And then you come to the time of the disciples, and soon after, we've been in Acts. What did Paul understand? You get a lot more insight into that as you read the New Testament. But even Paul didn't have as much perspective on history as someone like maybe John the disciple would have had, who lived to be an old man, was writing near the end of the first century. He had seen a lot of significant world events transpire that uh, really would have shaped his understanding of what was to come. Certainly you see that in the book of John and the book of Revelation. What do they understand about the Messiah? At the time of Jesus' birth, it's especially interesting to consider, what did people like Joseph or here, Zechariah, understand about this, this about the messiah what were they being taught about him in their schools as young jewish boys what were they being raised to do and we can discover some of this did his birth contradict their expectations did it fulfill them did it shift them a little bit even more specifically what exactly were they hoping the messiah would do when he came you get some insight into this as people are talking about the Messiah. As they're saying, no good thing can come out of Galilee. They're saying different things like this. What ideas did they have about who he might be or what he would be like? Ultimately, we're going to have to ask them, right? We can't get inside their heads until we meet them one day. But we can't understand certain things about what they understood based on what they say and what they do. I do believe what we find on the lips of Zechariah here is an understanding that Jesus, who at the time that John the Baptist is being born, Jesus is still unborn. I believe Zechariah understood that he was 
both Messiah and God. The Messiah would not only be the son of the Most High, that's what the angel said to Mary, he will be great and he will be called the son of the Most High. And that, that really is an indication that he is God. The Jews take issue with him. Do you call yourself the son of God? And Jesus says, you said it. And they say, you're blaspheming. So there, there is an indication of he's God. But I believe here, Zechariah is calling Jesus the most high. And we'll see that. I base that on what he's saying about his own son's coming ministry. This, again, is a prophecy about the Messiah and the Messiah's forerunner, John the Baptist, Zechariah's newborn son. Let's read, starting in verse 67, Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Zechariah's mouth has just been opened after 10 months of silence. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, this is his newborn son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel, which would have been some 30 years later. So after this prophecy, there was a long, still a long wait. Zechariah himself may not have been around by then. But you see this second half, starting at verse 60, 76, is really directed towards the son, John the Baptist, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High God, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. And then each set of verses gets a little more specific, and that's how our outline is going to progress tonight as we work through the, the text. What specifically will he be doing? Preparing the ways of the Lord. Verse 77, to give to his people. He's not preparing just ways, but people. The knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. And how specifically does this come to them? Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which not just God in heaven, the Father, but the Messiah himself will come with this very mercy, the mercy of God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our way, our feet into the way of peace. If you glance back, just want to get our bearings a little bit. What has been revealed to them already? Uh, the angel said something to Elizabeth and to Mary. Uh, look back, if you would, at Luke chapter 1, verse uh, 13. This is first to Zacharias. Luke chapter 1, verse 13. The angel appears to Zechariah and says, 
Don't be afraid. Your petition has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. You may see in your Bible there's an indication of an Old Testament quote here. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So there's been something that's been revealed to Zechariah already. If you look ahead to what's told to Mary, look at verse 28 of the same chapter. Coming in, the angel says to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 30, Don't be afraid, Mary, you've found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and he shall name him. you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And there's a bit more revelation in verse 35. How will this happen? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So this is what we call the virgin conception. This is the second person of the Trinity, God, the Son. He is the Son of God. He's the Son of the Most High. And Mary says, may it be done to me according to your word. Of course, Elizabeth calls the baby Lord. Elizabeth already believes something based on what she has found out from her husband as John is leaping in her womb at the arrival of Mary and Jesus. And then Zacharias, 10 months later, you can assume that they talked. Maybe he just listened because he couldn't talk. He knows these things. He's reasoning through the Old Testament scriptures. What does he know? I believe Zechariah had really put it together, the Lord's help, here he's saying it under the influence of the Holy Spirit, that this was God himself coming to rescue his people for himself. And that's signified by the arrival of the forerunner. There really is this very close connection between the Messiah and the forerunner, between Jesus and John the Baptist. One of them coming meant the other one had to come. And there was a definite indication about who the Christ would be and what he would be. He is God. And our purpose tonight is just to understand this link. How is John the Baptist linked with the arrival of the Messiah? Or to ask it another way, why would John be called, like his father calls him here, the prophet of the Most High? What does that mean? Well, in verse 76, he explains you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This is John's ministry. He prepares the ways of the Messiah, who is God most high. And maybe it's not immediately apparent that he is talking about Jesus is God most high. But I believe as we turn, if you would, keep your finger here in Luke chapter 1 and turn back to the book of Malachi. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. And if I forget to say this later, you can leave your finger or a bookmark or something in the book of Malachi. We'll be here several times. Malachi chapter 4. 
Zechariah understands by faith the ministry of his son. Probably, very clearly, based on what the angel told him in the temple. He is the one who will come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn these people, to prepare a people for the Lord. Look at Malachi chapter 4. If you find Matthew, it's the book right before Matthew. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. This is God speaking. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. Before the Christ comes, that's not exactly what it says. Read carefully. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Interesting. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So this is what the angel uh, comes and tells Zechariah about his son. That Elijah that you've read about your whole life in the book of Malachi, he's born in your family, John the Baptist. You can leave your finger there and turn back to Luke chapter 1. By the angel's word, there's an indication here about John the Baptist's ministry. It has to do with people. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. But look back at what Zechariah actually says in verse 76 of Luke chapter 1. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Where is he getting that? It's not Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. There's something else that uh, Zechariah has come to understand. Glance back, if you would, at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Zechariah has made a connection. You can almost say he put some cross-references in his Bible between Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. God says in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. And he will clear the way before me. So there's no mention of spirit and power of Elijah here. There's no uh, indication here that he's going uh, to, this is coming before the day of the Lord. But the messenger will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So who is the forerunner coming before? It's not just anybody. He's not just preparing ways. He's actually going before God himself. And I believe Zechariah has made that connection here. So keep your finger in Malachi, but go back to Luke chapter 1. I know we're doing some turning, but I hope it will become clear that Zechariah is calling the Christ the Most High. You, son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Why? For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. God said, I will send my messenger before me. Later, he says, I will send a prophet in the power and spirit of Elijah to prepare my ways. This Messiah who is coming is God himself. John the Baptist, just newborn, is his prophet. He's the prophet of the Most High God. And what does that mean? Zechariah understands not just the ministry of his son by faith, but the identity of Christ by faith. Zechariah has connected these two verses. What are the ways of the Messiah? It's actually 
a people. And who is the Messiah? It's Yahweh. He is God. Jesus is God Most High. I believe that's a valid reading of verse 76 there. Of course, the rest of the Bible is clear that this is true. It's not just, you don't just base that understanding, our understanding on that verse. Paul writes this in Romans 9, verse 5. He's indicating to this church in Rome, uh, from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Christ is over all, God blessed forever. Paul pulls no punches. He has no hesitancy about calling Christ God and God most high, God over all. There are many people who don't believe this. It's really maybe you've had them knock on your door and say that Jesus Christ is not God. He's just a prophet. But the Bible all over is clear that Jesus is God. And I believe Zechariah believed that as well. This title, God Most High, occurs many times. Psalm 47 is one of them. Psalm 97, verse 9, if you want to write that down. goes like this. You are the Lord Most High over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. This is the esteem in which all the people in the Old Testament held the God of Israel. And now Jesus being born deserves this same esteem. He is God most high. And what did he get treated like? Did he get treated like this? No, we were just one of the lines in one of the songs that the choir is going to sing next week is uh, he left his throne above yet mortal man rejected him. What does John 1 say? He came unto his own, but his own received him not. He is the rightful ruler. He is God, but people didn't believe it. They didn't want to believe it. They loved the darkness rather than the light. Daniel chapter 7 has a vision. You can write that one down. It's this time when Daniel has a vision and it comes to an end and he's very disturbed by this. It's one of those interesting Indic indications of his own state at all of these future things that he's seeing these world kingdoms and empires rising and falling but he has he gets this glimpse of the most high and the ancient of days coming and uh, interacting with another marvelous glorious being in heaven and daniel is disturbed by this but this is god most high he's worthy of our fear he's majestic this is who jesus is and we must believe in him. We must. It's not that there's a, a smorgasbord of people to believe in. Jesus is the one to fear. He is to be submitted to and obeyed. And John had a ministry of proclaiming that. He was the prophet of the Most High or for the Most High. And he was to go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. And Zechariah believed that to be true, that Jesus was God most high. So John is the forerunner. He's the one coming to prepare the road for the Messiah. But then Zechariah gets a bit more specific. What are those ways? You will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. And I believe, again, this is based in the book of Malachi, verse 77. What is John preaching? To give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. What does it look like for John to go before the Lord to prepare his ways? What is he doing specifically? 
He's not coming saying, the king is coming. Get out all your treasures to give to the king. He's not saying, arrange your town for the comfort of the king. He's not saying, draft your young men to go to battle with the king. What is he saying? He's saying, remove anything from your life that will hinder you from absolute service to the king. His kingdom is here. It's a kingdom of holiness. He is a God without sin. Turn from sin to be ready to serve this king from your heart when he comes. John came preaching repentance to prepare the people of the Messiah. And he's first informing them about salvation with God. There is salvation available, is what Zechariah says. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give his people the knowledge of salvation. This isn't necessarily even, he's not producing faith in them, but he's telling them, you need saved from your sins. It's not good enough just to be a Jew and to have this God as your God. You need to turn from your sins. You need saved from something. Specifically, as you read the Old Testament, you realize this comes from knowing the Lord himself. What did Jeremiah foretell in a new covenant passage? Jeremiah 31, verse 34. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it. At that time, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What will that time be like, God says? They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them even to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. And what will happen as they know the Lord in this way? For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. It's not that God is overlooking sin. It says, as they're coming to a true knowledge of the Lord himself, they're turning from their sin, and he's forgiving their sin. This is what John is informing people about, their salvation with God. As you know the Lord himself. But I think it's important to draw attention to how does that happen? What does Jeremiah 31 say? That God is just going to pervert justice and let sin slide? No, it's as he, he forgives sin, as we repent of sin. Forgiveness implies repentance. John came calling people to repent towards God. Back in Luke chapter 1. God, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. John preached repentance. Why didn't he preach forgiveness? Well, maybe he did. I think you could say God never forgives someone who doesn't repent. These always go together. The message of the gospel comes with a call to repent. That's part of the external call of the gospel. Only God can call someone internally, but the, the preacher gives this external call, repent and believe the gospel. That's what John came preaching. And I believe this is part of what Isaiah chapter 40 refers to. Uh, make the ground level, fill in the valleys, bring down the mountains. It's remove everything from your life that will stand in the way of serving God. It's, a, it's Isaiah's way to describe people preparing for God. 
preparing for his holy rule in your life. Put sin out of your life. Turn from it. Replace it with righteousness. And if you read John's preaching and how people are responding to him, people are coming and it's a soldier. What should I do? What does repentance look like for a soldier? Okay, don't extort people. Don't do this. Don't do that. What does it look like for a tax collector? Well, don't do this anymore. Turn from that. Do this instead. It's put sin out of your life. Replace it with righteousness. This is him preaching repentance, preparing people for the Lord. It's not good enough just to be a Jew. It's not good enough just to be a church member. That does not save you. And we want to be as careful as we can about that and help people examine themselves so that they know before the Lord that they are God's children. But that doesn't save you. John came preaching repentance. And that's only happening in a, in a person's life in an ongoing basis if God has saved you from sin at the first. This is the way that John prepared the ways of the Messiah and a people for the Messiah by preaching repentance for the gift for forgiveness of sins. This is how God saves a man. He pardons their crimes. They deserve justice. They deserve wrath. Their only hope is mercy. And the way God is called for men to receive mercy is as they turn from their wicked ways. And praise God that he does pardon criminals against the crown, right? Because all of us would be undone without it. So again, this forerunner, this baby is the promised prophet, the forerunner for the Messiah, who is God. He would prepare Christ's ways and specifically a people for him to come and rescue. But why is this such a significant ministry? As he's kind of getting more and more specific, what, what's the big deal about that message? And here, right at the very end of his prophecy, Zechariah really focuses in on and clarifies what John would be preaching. To give people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, I call this, he's preaching repentance because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Summarize it this way. John was proclaiming the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the language Paul uses. And that's really what John was doing. John was preaching, this is the glory of God. It's the glory of God to forgive sinners. But it's not just God. It's actually Jesus showing you what God is like. He proclaimed the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is important to remember that God is merciful and God feels merciful towards sinners to forgive sins. That's what Zechariah says here. Why does God forgive sins? Verse 77, God saves by the forgiveness of sins. Why does he do this? Because of the tender mercy of our God. Maybe you have a note in your Bible. This is this is that, that kind of phrase that's, you may see translated in something like the King James, bowels of mercy. It's, it's the, the feelings of mercy. Why does God forgive sins? Is it because people deserve it? Is it because he has to? Is it because he feels bad punishing people? 
Is it because he doesn't like justice? No, it's because God has pity on sinners. These are bowels of compassion. Like when your kid is sick and they're just miserable and usually they're really rambunctious and really happy to see you and all they do all day is just sit there and they look like a sick little puppy and they sit on the couch and they suck their fingers, probably making themselves more sick, whatever. And you, do you want, I'll give you whatever you want. You just, you just feel bad for them, right? I'll let you watch TV. I'll let you do this. You, you just, you have pity, right? God takes pity on sinners. Do you know that? Matthew Henry said, there was nothing in us but a piteous case to recommend us to the divine compassion. There's nothing in you and me that, that deserves it. It's just because God is so compassionate on people who are really such wretches. It's almost as if God looks at you in your sin and, and it just it pains him to see it. He says, come, be clean, be fed. God feels pity on lost sinners like you and me. Second Peter 3, 9, Peter writes, God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to heaven to be with him. No, for all to come to repentance. He knows that their sin is destroying them and making them sick and sorrowful. And God wishes that people would repent of their sin. And he wishes that all people would do it. This is how God views sinner. it's sinners. It's with pity. God revealed himself this way to Moses, and we see both sides of it. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is what God is like. This is his glory. Yet by no means will leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Really, when you see the fierce wrath, wrath of God in Scripture is when those calls to repent are rejected and resisted and refused, right? When people hear God's messengers call them to repent and they harden their heart and shut their ears and turn their backs, that's when you see God's righteous fury against sin. God is slow to anger and praise God that he is. He is piteous against sinner, but Woe to that sinner that refuses calls to repent. God is a God of mercy, and he offers forgiveness of sins. It's important for us to remember this. John came giving his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of God. That is a marvelous message that God has tender mercy for sinners. Will you turn from your sin today and put your faith and trust in Christ to save you from God's wrath? Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. If you're a church member, will you come to Christ for cleansing again? Repentance isn't just for salvation. It's the road we walk as Christians. Don't go on in unrepentance. Don't spurn the mercy of God towards you. God's mercy is his, it's part of his glory. Someone called God's glory his unique excellence. There, there's no one who has pity on sinners like God does. And John proclaimed that. But 
it's important to note that the Messiah would come with that exact mercy. John prepared before the Lord to prepare his ways to give the people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. The Messiah, it's a reference to the Messiah, and we'll go back to Malachi and see this. The Messiah would come with that exact same mercy because the Messiah is God. The Messiah has the authority and the power to forgive sins. Didn't Jesus say that? So that you know I have the authority to forgive sins. He said to the man, take up your bed and walk. And he did. And they said, who are you? We want to kill you. We don't believe you. Jesus did have that authority to forgive sins because he came with the tender mercy of God. And John, his forerunner, preached the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what John was preaching. Turn back to Malachi. This same tender mercy, if you have your finger there in Malachi, I didn't follow my own instructions. Malachi chapter 4. Verse 2, I'm going to read to you Luke 1. Zechariah said, to sh uh, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Now look at Malachi verse four, chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. So, in Zechariah's mind, what group is he lumping himself into? He's a God-fearer. He fears God. He fears the name of God. But that reference there to the son of righteousness, S-U-N of righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings. I believe that's what you may have a cross-reference back in Luke chapter 1. That's what Zechariah is referring to. With which the sunrise from on high will visit us. He will come that sunrise from on high with the tender mercy of God and visit those who fear his name. It's really more evidence that Zechariah and Elizabeth did fear God. They feared to sin. They turned from sin. They trembled at God's word. They took God seriously. But that's a reference to the Messiah. He would come and visit us with that mercy to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What exactly would the Messiah be doing when he came? And we're just getting more and more specific. He's really talking to John the whole time, but this is the ministry of the forerunner. And this is why I want us to see this close connection between the forerunner and the one who he came before, because you really get a good indication of who that one is. I think we're done in Malachi. If you would turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're almost done. God is full of mercy. It's his unique excellence. The Messiah would come with that very mercy. And what would he be doing? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. If you find one of those. Isaiah chapter 9. Really an incredible chapter. This is one of the verses, I believe, that's in the Christmas program next week. So you'll probably hear this next week. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. 
The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. They shall multiply. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Notice the the political overtones of this. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For why will all of this liberty happen? A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So just pretend that you've been raised your whole life in American history class, reading the founding documents of our country, being promised that there is going to come into our country someone who's going to give us that kind of existence. And you grow up believing it because the most powerful being in the, in the universe said it's true. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to accomplish this. And this is your, this is your political pride, your national identity. And then you're the man who sees his forerunner born. What are you doing? You've been raised your whole life that this is going to come true. This is awesome. This is amazing. He's here. He's here. His forerunner is here. There will be no end to the increase of his government and of peace. Finally, it's happening. Guys, can you believe it? Just as you get into their, into their mind and into their shoes, you realize this really is a big deal. It's an exciting day. The Messiah has come. Many in Jesus' day, reading those kinds of verses, believing he's the Messiah, can you really fault him for asking a question like the disciples asked? Okay, Lord, so is it now that you're going to set up your kingdom? When is the government actually going to come onto your shoulders? And when are we going to ascribe all these titles to you? And everybody's going to ascribe all these to you. You can hardly fault him for asking that. Because nobody really expected that there was going to be a coming and then a leaving and then a coming back, right? Until it happened, you're fooling yourself if you could find that in the Old Testament. (laughs) Uh, Nobody really saw that coming. God knew that was going to happen. They expected real, tangible freedom to come from the Messiah. And rightly so, based on the Old Testament. And probably in that day under Rome, they had a huge hope for that. There was, there was taxation, no taxation without representation. Do you think the Jews had representation? You know, they didn't like that, okay? There's heavy taxation. There's military occupation. There are wicked rulers. There is religious oppression. Let's get rid of these guys. Of course, Jesus' answer was not yet. There were times when Jesus withdrew from the crowds because he sensed they were coming to make him a king and his time was not yet. He had work to do. He had more important liberation to accomplish. And if he told someone that, they would never have believed. What's more important than us having our own national sovereignty? 
It's you being free from your sin. There were many saints who were hoping in more than political liberation. And I believe Zechariah is one of them. They expected the Messiah would come to lead them into obedience to God, into peace, not just in their land, but peace with God. Verse 79, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. That's from Isaiah 9. I didn't draw sufficient attention to that, perhaps. That's why we turn there. This Messiah came as shining light. There is a light-giving aspect to the gospel. Men love darkness rather than light. They push away the light, but we are the light. We are light and salt. Jesus is the light of the world. When we preach the gospel, we're shining light in places. But what's the, what's the net effect of all that? When we believe the gospel, this, I believe, was Zechariah's highest hope, not just political liberation, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Last reference to turn you to, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 59, I believe the only instance of this phrase, way of peace, is in Isaiah 59. And this isn't strictly a messianic passage. It's not necessarily about the Messiah. But I think you'll get an indication of why I'm explaining way of peace as more than just political. It's actually peace with God because of how this phrase is used. What is the way of peace? Isaiah 59 Verse 1, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. Nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is a chapter really about sin and a relationship with God or a non-relationship with God. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously and no one pleads honestly. All the courtrooms are just a travesty. They're just a joke. There's no justice in this land. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace. What do you think that means? Political liberation? No. They're not at peace with God. They're at war with God by their sin. That's what that means. And there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. There's no peace in Israel in these days because there is so much sin. You have to watch over your shoulder for even the people you should be able to trust because they're probably going to stab you in the back. It was bad. It was really bad. They needed peace. Not just liberation from the Midianites. Not just liberation from... The Assyrians, not the Babylonians, not the Persians. They needed liberated from their own sin, right? So I believe when Zechariah says the Messiah is coming to shine on those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Yes, he was going to come. He was going to set up his throne. They had to wait on that in God's wisdom. 
but he was hoping, and we too should hope, that he will guide our feet into the way of peace. Because without Jesus Christ, you will have no peace with God. You will not. There is no peace with God apart from the one who leads into the way of peace. The Messiah would come and lead his people into obedience. There's only peace with God as you turn from your sin, as he forgives you of your sin, and you're reconciled to him. We all need freed from the oppression of sin, don't we? We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, enslaved to it, walking after it. We were children of wrath, just like the rest. But God, because of his rich mercy and his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. This is exactly what Jesus still does today. Titus chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. This is the freedom that God sets us free to. It's freedom from sin. To live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Whatever else Zechariah hoped the Messiah would accomplish, the spirit of his hope, I believe, is captured well by the hymn, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And he did. And did he give them victory over the grave? Yes, he did. Did Zechariah get to see that? No, he didn't. But it was, it was just like he was there. Just like he could reach out and touch it by faith. Do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh? The devils believe and tremble. What do I have to do with you? Son of the Most High God. John is the prophet of the Most High. We can't just stop with a, an intellectual understanding of Jesus is the Most High God. Do you believe he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and takes away your sin? Do you believe that you need salvation? This is who John preached. This is who John had the great privilege to be the forerunner for. And John was a man of remarkable humility. But if, if he had the kind of faith that apprehended even just a sliver of this, it's no wonder he said, he must increase and I must decrease. Because this is awesome. He is an awesome Lord. Is he your Lord? He's the only way to be freed from sin and to be right with God. If we understand John's role as revealed by God through the prophets, we understand Jesus, I believe we can understand better, Jesus who came after him. And I think we can gain insight into Zechariah's joy. Why was he so excited about this? By faith, Zechariah knew that the arrival of the forerunner, 
signify the arrival of God himself to rescue a people for himself. And Zechariah was one of those people, by God's grace. And that was why he had such reason to rejoice. Do you rejoice in the birth of not the Savior, but your Savior? He came to rescue sinners. He is God most high. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we exalt you tonight. And Lord, we as we even just kind of piece together some things from your word, we marvel at the unity of it and your faithfulness to it. And we know, we, we know, we, we believe that everything that you've said will come to pass. Help us to live as people who have a great king who's just waiting for the right time. And all the battles are won. Maybe not all the foes are dead and gone, but help us to be faithful to you, Lord Jesus, because you are everything that you said you are. And you deserve all the fear that we can give you and all the worship we can give you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us from our sins, bringing us out of darkness into light. And Lord God, for your excellent, excellent mercy, which fills the earth. We praise you for it. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.